everyone and welcome back to another episode of The Whole Tooth, a podcast all about sharks and the oceans, brought to you by the Save Our Seas Foundation. I'm your host, Isla Hodgson, and every episode I gather together a panel of experts in marine science and conservation to answer one of your questions about sharks, rays and their underwater habitat. This week I'm joined by the amazing Jill Brooks and Hannah Med from the American Shark Conservancy, who hopped on the podcast to chat to me about recreational shark fishing and sustainability. Hannah and Jill are Save Our Seas project leaders who for the last few years have been working with anglers in Florida to understand the impact of catch and release recreational fishing on endangered great hammerhead sharks in order to help draft better, more sustainable practices for the future. This topic was so interesting to me because, first of all, we often associate catch and release fishing with bony fish and don't talk about it in relation to sharks, even though it is a surprisingly big industry. And we talk even less about its impact on wild shark populations. So it was really fascinating to have Jill and Hannah on to teach us all about the world of catch and release fishing and how we can make it more sustainable. A lot of what they say can be applied to fisheries more broadly. One central message that I took away from this conversation is the importance of building sustainable practices from the ground up and collaborating with a variety of different groups of people, including scientists, fisheries and anglers to exchange knowledge and information, build trust and really create solutions that work for everybody. That is something that Jill and Hannah have done from day one with their project and they discuss how vital that is to ensuring the longevity of sustainable practices. As always, I will put links to our phenomenal guests and their work in the show notes, so please, please go and check them out. But for now, I really hope you enjoy my chat with these two wonderful women who give us a fascinating insight into the world of shark angling and how it can become more sustainable. So, without further ado, let's dive into our episode. The question that I like to kick off the podcast with is potentially quite a difficult one. I've I've learned this from our previous guests, that it's a really hard question to ask. Uh, But it is, what is your most memorable experience in the ocean? Uh, So, Jill, do you want to start? Yes, sure. I've got quite a few very memorable moments, but I, to, if I had to choose one, I um, I got to join uh, Professor Dean Grubbs on one of his sawfish longlining surveys. Um, and after two days of not seeing one, we managed to, to haul a line that had, I think, six on one single longline. Wow. And we basically ran out of space, ran out of like power to haul the line in. And we just, it was just sawfish after sawfish and, and Dean had to swim down and unhook some of them and bring them up on a tail rope. And I was just like, oh my goodness. Wow. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't think I'll ever forget that day in the field. Pretty, pretty good. That sounds incredible. I mean, to see six all at once. I know. <laughs> that's insane. <laughs> yeah, that's a good day. That's so exciting. Hannah, how about you? What's your most memorable experience? It was really hard. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> um, I think one of the most special, I mean, field work is amazing and tagging a great hammerhead in daylight um, for our beach stuff was pretty insane, um, especially because we finally got pictures of it. And I was like, could look back because then in the moment, obviously you are no, I'm not focused on anything, but putting those darts <laughs> where they need to go. I literally have no idea what's going on around me. So to go back and see it in daylight and see the pictures, it was pretty cool. Um, but honestly, like for any ocean lover, I think the quiet time in the ocean off the coast of Mozambique in about, I don't know, maybe 20 feet of water and no one else with me just swimming along with the whale shark whose belly was like mm. scraping the sand and this crystal clear water and no one else was with us. And it was just me and the animal. That's something I, you know, think about often when I'm (laughs) overwhelmed with things, I'm like, okay, there are beautiful moments in the ocean and that's actually what matters. So that's the one that stuck with me. That's amazing. So, so you were on your own. So were, were you just snorkeling and the whale shark appeared or did you know she, know she was there? 
Yeah. So we had, my husband's family was running one of the dive shops up there. So we had gone up and we were supposed to go for two weeks and stayed for six Mm because that's what you do up there. And um, yeah, we had just taken one of the boats out and um, there weren't any tourists or anything with us. And we just happened to see her in the shallows and no one else got in, but me. Um, So I don't know how they, (laughs) I don't know why they did it, but I just know that that's, that was, I just slipped in and she was just belly against the sand, just swimming along and it was stunning and quiet and peaceful. And that moment was like, just for me, (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) which was lovely. Yeah, amazing. Like, I think as as well, like one of the most spectacular things about working in the oceans for me as well is just that I, that feeling of solitude sometimes. So especially when you're out on field work and it's just you and the rest of the team or, you know, just yourself and something incredible happens, you know, you're, you're, you're completely on your own and just it's like you say, it's just really is like a almost like a gift for yourself, if that's not weird to say. <laughs> that's yeah, exactly but- how it felt for sure. The reason that um, I asked you both to to come on to this episode and help me answer this quite, you know, very large and and complex question is because you're both part of you you've both started a project which is looking at the impact of you know catch and release angling on great hammerheads in Florida. So looking at you know recreational fisheries and you know actively trying to work towards making those fisheries more sustainable. And um, so so can you? Tell me a little bit about the project and, you know, how did the idea for this project kind of come about? Sure. I can jump in. <laughs> Anna, you can. <laughs> um, again, Hannah is based on the ground in Florida where a lot of, there's a lot of uh, different user groups of the marine system there that are often in conflict with each other. Um, and there's a lot of, complaints about um dead sharks washing up on the beach the morning after probably some anglers were fishing that night um a lot of complaints and it was just what is is this even legal can can people do this and it was like oh yeah this is fully legal and it was like wow okay um yeah everyone's like this is really bad for sharks this should be banned and then the fishermen were like no it's it's not if you do it right like we've been doing this for years and um so yeah it was just like this brewing conservation issue a lot of conflict between all the different user groups and the the management and as Hannah had mentioned before there was just there was no data on it there was no data on who was doing it how often it was happening where are they fishing what are they fishing for how do they even do this from a beach uh, let alone the like the physiological effects of of this kind of fishing on sharks. So we were like, we've got to study this. <laughs> Shall we do it? Shall we go for it? And I've the lab that I'm with in in Ottawa is very catch and release recreational fishing, looking at physio- conservation physiology of of fishing on fish, mostly freshwater fish. I was like, yeah, people do it for freshwater. Let's let's do this for. And Hannah's just perfectly situated and knows all the key players of all the different user groups and it was just it was just perfect um that's how it started Hannah if you want to add no that that's absolute that's how I remember it um you know I I being kind of on my not on my own in Florida but I mean you know and when Jill like piped up and was like yeah we can study this it was like a the boost of like confidence that like yeah no you're right we can actually tackle this um Mm -hmm. so it was just I think a good combination of me being there kind of like really knowing a lot of the people who were you know talking about the issue being you know having worked with FWC before um you know, it's just kind of a good, you know, compliment, I think with the two of us and, and her being in that lab and having the support and, you know, all those people around her that knew, you know, so much about catch and release and physiology, and even just like exactly what our methodologies should look like. And she's so connected through all of her, the people she knows through Bimini, um, Mm -hmm. Dean Grubbs, et cetera. You know, it was just a really good situation we found ourselves in and really exciting so it was that's that's how I remember it (laughs) yeah almost like a kind of like scientific match made in heaven (laughs) in a way yeah and plus we're friends and I think we really enjoy (laughs) 
yeah. enjoy each other and get along well, which I've been yeah. in other collaborations where it's a lot of like grinding your teeth and, you know, trying to be polite. And yeah. luckily we, I think, have a really good time um, working and playing together. So it's, it's awesome. Yeah. That, that always helps. That always lends a helping hand when you actually are pals with your team. I think it, mm-hmm. it, it works really, really well. Um, so we, so the question that we have to answer today is can shark fisheries become more sustainable? Um, and you know, they've, they've just, there's just the broad term there of shark fisheries. And I mean, you guys have mentioned, you know, recreational fisheries, but you know, people listening at home might not necessarily know what the difference is between recreational fishing and the commercial fishing, uh, you know, that, that supplies, you know, the food source for the rest of the world. So I just wondered if we could kind of talk about what the, what the differences are between those two fisheries just before we kind of get into the meat of the question. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I'm speaking obviously from a U.S. perspective, um, Mm -hmm. but in a broad sense, you know, commercial fisheries really, like you said, um, is for, in, in the U.S. especially, is a highly regulated, you know, revenue generating activity that uses natural resources, i.e. the fish. So there's people that have permits, they're regulated by where they can go, when they can fish, what gear they can use, um, what size fish they can keep. Um, mm-hmm. And there's a lot of like record keeping that goes along with it. They're, they have to, in order to make money um, and to be able to sell their fish, they have to you know, have all of that stuff in place. Um, that's not the case in many parts of the world. Um, obviously there that's, it's, we have the infrastructure to handle that in the, you know, in North America mostly. Um, so among, you know, uh, over like a global scale, there is commercial fishing can be a really big problem. Obviously that's usually like big fleets. Um, you think of long lining with hundreds of hooks, you know, you just, the impact just is, can be incredibly large. Um, and can be incredibly devastating as overfishing, you know, in a lot of parts of the world have seen, you know, cause the decline and crash of populations of sharks. Um, on the flip side here in the United States, it's very highly regulated. Um, you know, everything is recorded, every kind of, you know, every shark species, not maybe to the species level for everybody, but it is very regulated. Um, on the flip side, our recreational fisheries is just basically open to anyone who isn't going to be making money off of the endeavor. Um, so that's anyone who will go out and, you know, they may need a proper state license and on the federal level, like on the national level, they do need um, an endorsement for their permit. So there's some permitting and, and things, but it's not um, capped in any way. So anyone mm-hmm. with a rod and reel who wants to go out and do it for fun um, may need a license, but it's never capped. That total number of people who want to go out and have fun and catch um a shark uh, at maybe needs to be within a slot, a size limit. Um, they may be slightly restricted by the gear mm-hmm. um, and they may be slightly restricted on the handling. So prohibited species may have to be thrown back, but it's just a little less regulated and it's certainly not capped off at any kind of total number of participants. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and what you mentioned there about them sort of, sometimes you have to catch, once you've captured the shark, sometimes you have to then put it back. And, you know, is that is that what you meant by catch and release? It's sometimes mandated for species, but sometimes anglers don't want to eat the thing they catch. They just enjoy being outside. They just enjoy seeing the animal and and the Mm -hmm. fight of of bringing it in and and they release it without any legal requirement to do so. It's a it's a type of fishing, a non-consumptive type of fishing. Yeah. 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 And I think I think what um, people at home might be you know, might be quite new to them or might be quite surprised about because they, they might have heard about this type of fishing for, you know, different types of bony fish, for example, whereas, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's not often uh, talked about that that much in sharks. So, you know, it, people do do this for sharks as well, um, mm. as is the case in, in Florida, which is where you work. And um, so another thing that I kind of wanted to get a little bit of clarity on when we're thinking about this question is, you know, it's potentially quite a difficult question, but, you know, what do we mean when we say a, a fishery is unsustainable? Ooh, it's very complex. Yeah. Um, yes. But yeah. I would say on the most basic 
maths is you're taking too many things out of a system and those cannot be replaced fast enough. Um, so it's just mm -hmm. over harvesting, taking too many out. And in fisheries, it, it's quite difficult. It's not like logging where you can count the number of trees because you can see them. And you're like, actually, we know how fast they grow. We know how many there are. So we're going to take this amount every year because we know that that can grow and can catch up and can replace itself. Whereas fisheries, it's mm. all underwater. You can't count every, even any fisheries, any trout or bass or shark fisheries. Like it's really hard just to count them. Um, so there's a lot of maths involved and it's all very much above my head. But there's a lot of uh, information required on, on kind of the species specific life history things. So how old are they when they start having babies themselves? How many babies do they have? How many of those babies survive their first year? Um, and how long do they live for? So how many sets of babies can they have in their lifetime? And all of those things feed into kind of population models um, where very clever people, way cleverer than I, uh, can mathematically kind of assess, okay, we can sustainably, we can look at taking this many out of that system with all those assumptions mm -hmm. of of kind of how long they're going to live for and things like that and then yeah we'll take those out and then we'll see how that goes every year and if they start declining then we're obviously taking too much and we need to readjust how many we're we're catching um but it's all very complex and very species specific and site specific mm -hmm. and gear type specific so so it's yes. a hard question to, to answer sorry i waffled no, on no there. yeah exactly um and I think it's important to note that when we're talking about sustainability, there's quite, there's not very clear definitions of what it means to be sustainable. And it's also something that's incredibly hard to monitor, especially in the seas. Um, and when we're talking about yeah. sharks, we, we mentioned this on a previous episode as well, in that they're extremely long lived. Um, they tend to, they tend to be very slow to reproduce, you know, which means that they invest a lot in very few offspring. Um, so they tend to be quite vulnerable to exploitation. <laughs> so what it means for a shark fishery to be unsustainable might be, you know, very different to what it what it might mean for a for a commercial uh, species of bony fish, for example. You know, in recent years, we've become mm -hmm. very, very aware of what the impact of commercial fishing can be on fish populations, helped along by documentaries like Seaspiracy in the last year and just a, just a lot more knowledge and information coming out there. But we don't often hear about recreational fisheries. Do, do we actually know much about what the potential impact of recreational angling is? Um, well, again, from a U.S. perspective, I think there's it's become much more of a focus point um, in research <laughs> and in management. I think it was um, thought to be a benign sort of you know, zero sum game, basically, if you were, you know, catching and releasing the numbers were low, you know, most of the time they were releasing it under the assumption that everything lived after it got released. Um, you know, I think it had been sort of just not ignored, but you know, there's a, there's a priority list and those commercial fisheries really do have an incredible impact. So, sort of down the down the ladder were the recreational fisheries, but I, it's starting to become um, a little bit more apparent and being a little bit more focus, more of a focus for research, mm -hmm. um, especially on the shark side. Um, it is growing an in interest in a lot of areas. And we are, you know, through a couple of these you know, studies that have been done so far, you know, even catch and release might not be, you know, the, the silver bullet that we were, you know, hoping that it was, um, mm -hmm. it may actually have a negative impact and our recording of the types of, you know, the type and effort of recreational fishing for a long time was a, in the United States was not the most robust, so the numbers have been readjusted and reevaluated. And I mean, it's far more than anyone thought it was over the last decade. Um, so it's, it's clearly a, it's, it's a growing sport. Um, and we just have to be cautious about that, those impacts now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they're, they're both linked as well. Hey, the commercial fisheries and the recreational fisheries there, it's the same system. They're both fishing out of, and they are managed or kind of, they are linked in management as well. So, um, for example, a hammerhead fishery, the commercial quotas 
they're set for the commercial longliners. This is how many tons of hammerhead species you can take out of this system each year. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that kind of amount, they they take out, okay, well, how many are being caught and harvested recreationally, but also how many are being caught and released, but what's the mortality rate of those releases? And that kind of piece of the pie is also considered when these very clever fisheries managers are going, okay, how many can we take? All right, this is how many we can take sustainably. We have to remember that there's some going out in the recreational harvest. Mm. There's some going out in the recreational catch and release that aren't making it. There's also some that are being caught on the commercial long line and put back because they've maxed out their quotas. They need to put them back. They're not making it either. So those still count as deaths in that in that original like this is how many we can take so they they do remove all of those and what's left is what the commercial long line is okay that's what you're allowed to take now right yeah they are linked and it's so the data so those data are so important because it it does inform you know what those commercial guys are able to take and so if it's a question mark or if it's unsure or if it's really underestimated that can certainly have a big impact Yeah, so it's so it's all linked together. So one informs the other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So your project focuses on the Great Hammerhead. Uh, so I just wondered if we could talk a little bit about the Great Hammerhead as a species. So why do they come to Florida? And, you know, what are their life strategies kind of like? Why wouldn't they go to Florida? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a better question. <laughs> exactly. I'd like to be in Florida. Um, I'll start, but Hannah's way more familiar with the species. Um, but yeah, the the ecosystem of Florida, there's it's quite diverse. There's just a lot going on. It's yeah, it's very um, I don't know the word I'm looking for. It's like dynamic and productive, productive and you know, it's yeah, yeah, like it. There's there's good prey. You yeah. know, our water has. Uh, and obviously as like climate change and things come into play, mm-hmm. their thermal tolerances will change. But I mean, I'm getting reports now of, I mean, someone did an aerial, Jessica Pate, um, who is a manta researcher, does aerial surveys. She just told me today she saw five hammerheads on her flight. Oh so I think their time that they're spending in Florida is actually, because they, they should have moved north a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. So I think their time here in Florida is is expanding as I think everybody's um, <laughs> study yeah. animals or we're start we're gonna start to see some shifts in yeah. when they spend their time and what temperatures. Um, but yeah, it's a very productive. We're, the Gulf Stream is a major um, body of water that moves right up and actually comes and flows around the UK. Yeah, we we love the Gulf Stream. i'm sure you guys get all sorts of weird things riding that we we do we've had leatherback turtles we've had sunfish before coming up on the gulf stream but yeah we we love the gulf stream mainly because without it we'd be much colder so (laughs) right that's true yeah so it has many benefits for everyone yeah um yeah yeah, it just causes these like really great productive areas um it's good Mm -hmm. nutrient and like you know um prey offspring can get spread all over the place and yeah it's just a it's a very productive area and um, there's there's some good stuff to eat and some like safe habitat for them so I think that's why a lot of them hang out and for the most part our high season for them we think is driven mostly or driven in part by the presence of the black tip sharks um not mm-hmm. black tip reef sharks but lumbatus um and different species different from parts of the world um but often get confused they don't have that cool little black tip it's very annoying they're very strangely named um but they migrate down a very predict predictable way um mm-hmm. down into south florida as snowbirds as we call them so during the oh, colder wow. months um mm-hmm. during our winters so then the hammerheads that's a, a preferred prey item we we guess and um so they follow them into the shallows and it, they're there in the in the thousands um, so the hammerheads mm. definitely capitalize on that as well during that time period. And then the tarpon, hey, there's a huge tarpon migrations in, in South Florida yeah. and the Keys. Um, they're a big wreck angling fish species as well. Wow. And yeah, <laughs> hammerheads are there just feeding on on tarpon as well. Yeah. So, there's just a lot of food for them in Florida. 
Yeah, just a mass a massive hammerhead duffy, yes, essentially exactly. in Florida. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Amazing. And I love the term snowbird as well. <laughs> yes. That's really sweet. What methods are you guys using to understand the impacts of angling on the great hammerheads? Um, yeah, so we uh, are using short-term satellite tags um, that we put on that are kind of a pretty simple um, method. It's, it doesn't feel simple when you're trying to put them on in, you know, three-foot waves, but that's, you know, <laughs> the technology itself. They, they're answering the question that we, that we are asking. So basically, we put the satellite tags on the animal once it's been caught, and then mm-hmm. once it swims off, measures the depth. Um, so if it sits at a certain place for three days, um, that tag recognizes that as a mortality and it'll pop off, send the message to the satellite system when we get an email or we obsessively check the database as soon as the tag is deployed. Jill gives me 15 minute updates um, once the tag's gone out. Um, and if it doesn't, which is great is the shark swims off and we will get the data, those data back. um, And it'll basically show us the depth profile of that shark. So it swam off and, you know, some of them drop down to some colder waters and like pretty Mm -hmm. deep depths and then do sort of typical yo-yo diving. Um, So we're able to get, you know, about 30 days, if the tag stays on that long, 30 days worth of data that we can assess um, but really we're, you know, the main, the first question we asked was, do they survive? And that, that tag is able to tell us um, that pretty clearly. And so all that, all of that has to happen really quickly, Isla. So during the early days of, of, of discussions on how bad this fishery is, everyone's like comparing it to the commercial longliners um, and how hammerheads die. They all die on hooks out on a, on a long line. Um, but the, recreational anglers are like yeah but that's not how we do it we release them a lot quicker they're not on a on a hook for that long we're not bringing them up to a boat and tying them up to a boat while you take blood while you measure while you tag them things like that like that they would argue that that's as stressful as the fishing event so what are you really measuring here their survival of is it is it the fishing event or is it the handling event so to kind of remove that bias or that that question mark we have to we I've yet to, I've done one. <laughs> I was like, we, mostly Hannah, has to run into the surf uh, and, and, you know, put these two dart tags in while the anglers are unhooking, while they're trying to wrestle the shark and trying to turn it around and trying to get it back in. We, we don't do anything else with the shark. We're just like, okay, we, we run in, hammer the, the tag in and then let the anglers do what they would normally do. If they take pictures, they take pictures. Like, it's just all... Whatever you guys do, we're not going to interfere. We're going to really just measure the success or or not success of of whatever you're doing. Um, so it's 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 fun. It, yeah, yeah. I was just about to say it. That sounds like that sounds like a a pretty fun challenge for sure to do it that quickly. Um, I mean, I've I've tagged animals before and just. I know how tricky it is to kind of get it just right, especially on a shark that's moving. Because <laughs> I imagine they're thrashing about quite a lot when they're when they've been reeled into shore. Just just to get this clear in my mind, so the the anglers, so they're not actually out on a boat; they're actually on shore, and they're sort of hooking the hammerhead, sort of reeling it in to sort of shallower waters, I guess, and then maybe taking a picture with it or you know just the that action is good enough and then they just let it go and turn it back around and send it on its way okay so they they use really big bait if they're specifically targeting the hammerhead so they'll kayak the rod stays on land they kayak out this big chunk of bait because they can't possibly cast it they drop (laughs) it kayak back and then it does sound so super exciting and it certainly is when that rod goes off but there's an awful lot of time where you're just staring at a rod and reel not moving (laughs) just for full see there's a lot of time where there's zero action and you're just staring at the stars for a while so so you you guys then must work very closely with the with the anglers themselves as well oh yeah absolutely and and just following up from what i said was we, we let the anglers do their thing 
we we couldn't fish for these animals. There's no way. Um, we no way we would know where to start. But even physically, there's no way I could reel in one of these um twelve foot hammerheads into the beach. Um, so yeah, originally we relied. We were like, we need the anglers to be able to do this. And then the more we sat with the anglers, we're like, we also need the anglers for the whole conservation issue. Like, we need them to be on board. We need to listen to them. I mean, that's a whole other angle of research is understanding the, the human dimensions of it as well. And I won't go too much into that. But we've, I mean, Hannah especially, again, because... She's just on the beach with them every night. Um, a huge network of anglers that are really very supportive of the research. They love it. Um, they love talking about science with us. Um, and they're all very passionate about that shark making it. Uh, and there's obviously a few bad eggs that uh, um, kind of, I think, get a lot of the attention. Um, but yeah, the majority of anglers are, are you know, pro- <laughs> conservation because they know they want to do this for the rest of their life like they it has to be there in 10 years for them to fish for them and I, I would say to the the there's some bad eggs but there's also just a very I think they fall into the two categories some that are just like listen I've done this my whole life this is how I'm going to do it which are very seem very few in my opinion and then the mm -hmm. other is this learning curve it's got to be a really like very um high profile um, undertaking was like, especially the hammerheads, like during a season, it became something that was, you know, a really like got a lot of attention on social media. And mm -hmm. I think a lot of people tried to get into the game um, without knowing very much. So there's just sort of a naive starting point. Um, and that's where I think we've seen, we, we also are working with the FWC to kind of be in charge of when a, you know, say a dead hammerhead washes up on shore, there's not really a protocol in place. So we're building that protocol right. and we've been able to match up sometimes when there's posts about, you know, someone young or hasn't, it happened this year, you know, somebody posted a picture of themselves in the area with a, a hammerhead using very light gear, zero experience, um, you know, things like that. And, and then I got a call the next day that there was a dead hammerhead and I could tell from the rig um, that was still, you know, the hook mm -hmm. that was still there, like this was a shore-based fishing event. Um, so I think it's, that's also, I think probably the biggest impact is the people who just don't really know, um, all the, you know, that learning curve, we're mm -hmm. trying to flatten that, <laughs> yeah. trying to get them to the point where, yeah, they, they, they have all that like really good inside information really early on so that we can, you know, avoid, avoid that. That's brilliant because that's something that I was going to ask you guys about, but we've kind of come to it naturally is how important it is to work along not just engage but like work alongside the, the the people that are operating within the fisheries and you know that are that are doing the angling and I think it's just it's so so important to actually work with them and sort of understand the mechanisms behind it so that and then and then gain that trust as well which you know is, is a very hard it's a very hard thing to do because I, I don't know if you guys have experienced this but I, I actually work in the human dimensions aspect and one thing that I find really difficult is, you know, perceptions of you as a scientist and, you know, coming as coming in as an outsider. Is that something that you guys have, have also experienced or? Oh, gosh, yes. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you can imagine. <laughs> Recreational fishing is a, a pretty male dominated field as a sport. And yes. then as you I think as you go higher up the food chain, I think it just gets more masculine more macho um and then yeah us two wandering down the beach hi <laughs> it's uh <laughs> it's been a it's been very interesting um yeah. I mean I'm so I'm really proud of of what we've achieved and how how much trust we've gained um just I mean being invited to their stupid Denny's 3 a.m. ritual of eating spaghetti bolognese if they catch a hammerhead that's you can't not do that because then you won't get a hammerhead next time like so we join them on that awful tradition but it I mean as someone 
<laughs> a wise person once told me if if your user group if your collaborators ever invite you for a meal you go you you go and you break yes. bread you have a drink with them you eat with them and you chat with them and you you start gaining that trust and and we and Hannah especially mm -hmm. I'm up here in Canada just in the Facebook Facebook group chats just like chiming in every now and then but Hannah is there getting all the texts she's she's definitely within that a, a lot of that network now um but it, it was hard and we don't look like anglers so yeah people are skeptical and and I guess we're young so people are always like oh are you able to do this are you qualified to do this and it's it's been it's been frustrating but we've done it we've 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 got there yeah I was gonna say um I will also add in not only from the science or from the angler side um you know, I think we were probably met with a bit of amusement, like, wait, <laughs> you girls want to do what now? Um, so yeah, getting in, working with the anglers, there's a lot of, I, I buzzword again, but like knowledge exchange, like, yes, you know, yeah. I talk about things from the science side, they talk about their experiences and the gear that they use, you know, there was just a ton of that. And then as well, um, you know, policy and management and academia, like all of that was all involved and we've had to navigate it. But again, also super proud of being able to do it while I think producing a pretty good um, project that we hope will continue for a little while. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's, it, I, I said it before, but I'll say it, you know, I'll say it again. It's, it's so important to, you know, work with people. I think that's, that's such a huge aspect of conservation. Um, you know, that people don't necessarily realize is, you know, a lot of interacting with humans, really, and sort of working with humans. And you mentioned it before, sort of like kind of working, changing it from the inside. Um, and that's really sometimes the way that we can, we can really make a difference. Um, so I just wondered if you, are, are you guys able to, you know, share any of what you found with the yeah. project or, you know, with the tagging data or when you're talking to anglers? Yeah, so there's two kind of halves to the project. Like you said, we've got the human dimensions side and we've got the biological side. Mm -hmm. I can just quickly talk about our human dimension study and then Hannah can jump in and talk about the tagging as she's yeah. done the majority of the tagging. Um, but yeah, our human dimensions, the first paper's in, um, in review right now, so I can, I can talk about it. Um, but yeah, we asked, we, we sent out a survey um, as we were again designing the the biological study and getting getting talking with the anglers, we were like, hang on, there's a whole side of this that we don't understand. And and some very good friends of mine are social scientists, and just chatting with them, they're like, yeah, you need to start asking these kind of questions. So yeah, we we did a, a survey um, to all the permit holders in Florida, and we got. I'm just gonna round everything up, but basically, we got about a thousand shore-based shark fishing anglers that target actively target sharks from shore responding to our survey which was awesome um and then so putting kind of all the demographics into a into r and having it all spit out uh, in a cluster analysis there's kind of three types of angler uh, there's obviously some overlap but there's the super experienced and have been doing it for a long time and they they do it often there's the less experienced they're relatively new to the fishery um and and do it often they're trying uh, and then there's somewhere in the middle of of kind of experience they just don't do it that often they don't they don't do it that much anymore um but through that survey we we asked okay how many sharks have you caught in the last year how many bulls how many lemons how many hammerheads how many tigers um and i think i would have to just pull this up um Almost 10,000 sharks were caught by our respondents in one year. Um, so if you kind of extrapolate that up to the full permit holder list, which is about 18,000 anglers, um, it's around 130,000 sharks caught in one year in Florida from the beaches. So wow. it's a huge, I mean, it's back of the envelope, like rounding up, but it's, it's a decent amount of sharks caught compared to the commercial fishery. Yeah, wow, that that's definitely much more than than I would have thought anyway. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. I know it's it's frightening. And the amount of money they spend, it's in the tens of millions of dollars. So it's a huge input to the, the Florida economy. And there's like I I'm not 
it's a huge paper. I'm not going to go through it all because it, it's super interesting. But from the presentations we've given at conferences and talked to the fisheries managers, they're like, wow, okay, this is, this is a thing that we, we really need to, to take note of. So that's been good. Um, and then using that survey, we looked at, okay, if you've caught hammerhead, a great hammerhead, can you then you know, redirect them down a different survey track and say, okay, what gear type did you use? Where were you? Did it survive? How long did it take you? Like all of these kind of most fishing specific questions, we've asked those, uh, which mm-hmm. will help us guide our tagging study because we've kind of realized the gear types that our anglers are using are on the high end um, as far as rod and reel combinations. They're, they're pretty strong gear. Um, but the people that have reported catching a great hammerhead in that survey, that's a really small portion of, of people that use that gear. So we need to start branching out now and using lighter gear. But I'll flip it to Hannah, who's, who's got the data on, on the actual tagging study. Yeah, and that's the, the gear, just you know, in case people don't know when we're talking about the gear, like a heavier gear means like a stronger rod and a bigger reel um thicker line bigger hook so just like a real beefy setup and what that can do (laughs) is get the animal from the time it bites that hook it gets the animal typically gets it to shore so its whole like experience being fished is a lot shorter Mm -hmm. which is you know a lot less traumatic and can you know mean that the stress hormones don't spike um, causing like all sorts of issues downstream. Um, so if you're using what we consider light gear, that would be, you know, a thinner, longer rod, lighter line, um, and a smaller reel. Cause the reel, the anglers get very angry with me because <laughs> I keep asking them to explain how the reels work and it's been three years and I should know better, but, um, it's still, it's actually much more complicated. There's drag and there's gears and there's this whole, you know, there's, there's a whole physics behind it. And I did not do super great in physics in, um, undergrad, but anyway, so just for like an overall, like that bigger reel, um, the smaller stuff, it might take the, the fight time from hook to landing could be longer. So that mm-hmm. just is much more time for the, you know, for the shark to get, you know, really worked up stress hormones go through the roof, you know, and their overall physiological, like, or their fitness declines. So, you know, in a lot of studies, like these guys were sending the sharks back into the water thinking everything was fine. And this is, you know, when people are like, don't you just love hammerheads? I'm like, actually, I mean, they're cool, but they're like, it's so annoying that there are these like big, you know, apex predators, but like they stress out and they don't handle it well. Like some people don't handle stressful situations as well as others. Like it, they're just in that category. <laughs> so they'll swim off. These anglers are like, see you later. That was successful. Um, and you know, downstream a day of, you know, 48 hours later, the animal actually ends up dying, but they looked fine mm. swimming off you know, based on, you know, just observation. And that's why our tags are so important as well. Um, but yeah, we, we affix those tags on anything that's caught, um, by anglers themselves. We don't do any of the fishing as Jill said, like that's, they perform their fishing activity or exactly how they would. And we put those tags on and we've put out 16, so far, um, and we don't quite have the, the, our data published yet, um, but I can definitely say that a very, uh, un, a surprisingly few have um, not made it. Um, we have a very high survival rate based on um, the tags that we've put out, mm-hmm. and be, the social side was so important, as Jill said, is because then we were able to recognize maybe the driver of that was the gear and the Mm -hmm. experience of the anglers we mostly worked with. So it wasn't, we wouldn't just be like, oh, yay, throw a party. Everybody can fish for hammerheads. They're fine. Um, It comes with a very serious caveat that like we wouldn't have known if we didn't go down the social science route and be able to like really understand Mm -hmm. what most people are fishing with. We were actually unbeknownst to us fishing with the most elite you know, group with the most experience, with the heaviest gear. Um, so that helps us interpret those results, which is then also, again, helpful for managers because maybe gear really does have 
um, a big part to play, which can be a management um, action. Awesome. Yeah, there's there's two really cool things that I took from took from what you just said. And the first one is, you know, obviously the value of having these kind of interdisciplinary projects where you on the one hand, you've got the sort of biological or, you know, the technical data, but on the other hand, you've got the sort of social science data and you can put them together to sort of see put the whole story together and, and almost put the jigsaw together. Mm. Uh, and the other one is the idea of hammerheads as these kind of uh, very quick to stress out characters. Because <laughs> I always thought of them as being these sort of like <laughs> really sort of chilled dudes that just hang out in tropical waters. But but no, they're just they're, they're quite anxious, apparently. <laughs> Although I guess I would be as well if I'd just been reeled in shore. kind of circle back to sort of the overall question you know what lessons have you guys learned from this project that we could you know maybe apply to sort of making fisheries in general more sustainable I would say just my like the growth and the sort of thing that struck me was really the importance of the um, human aspect of it um I think I'm so used to looking at projects, you know, our tagging, the tagging stuff that we did, obviously with Bimini um, and Steve Kessel, like it was very focused on, you know, where do these animals go? And it was very focused on environmental drivers. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that it's been a big eye opener for me and I feel very like happy in, which were all good questions, but I was always anxious to have some, like, if I'm going to do it, I want it to be applied to something like it, which, you know, research can be, but this was like from the get-go, we knew exactly. Um, and I think it, uh, we knew exactly that, like it needed to be applied to state and federal levels. So, um, the human dimension of it and, and considering them as a factor and as a source of information. And, you know, it's been that really, this project has driven that home for me. Um, I mean, I think it's probably a lot of people already know that. I mean, there's people in fisheries management that know that, but from coming from like sort of the research and academic side Mm -hmm. to, to this project, I think it's been the takeaway is that like, it really, you know, having respect for the people involved in the activity, getting their input. Um, I work with a lot of different stakeholder groups. I mean, a lot with the dive industry as well. Um, very, very different groups, obviously, but, um, I just, I noticed that it, it's, it applies to both. Um, so I think that was my, my big takeaway. And I think there's definitely people within the fisheries, you know, they already know that, um, probably, but (laughs) that was the big takeaway for me, um, is that it is a very important part of this, of co-producing the stuff that's, you know, going to make the impact that I, that I hope it will. Yeah. And just to kind of follow up on that, um, obviously understanding the human dimensions is important, but as like Hannah said, co-producing, like that's a, I mean, new word in my research field is, um, we, we reached out to FWC, we reached out to the, the shark scientist at NOAA, the manager at NOAA, HMS up in Washington, DC. We were like, okay, what do you need to answer this question? Like what data do you need? Uh, and we've had guidance from the start from the people that are actually going to use the data. And then we've gone to the anglers and like, how do we even do this? How do you fish for this? So we've had their input into the project design and they've told us what probably wouldn't work because we, we've we been designing this at a desk. We've not been out in the field with them. So there's a lot of people that have contributed from the beginning, the project design. We mm-hmm. haven't gone in as biologists, parachuted in, got this question, got the data and then gone, okay, who needs this data? And, and kind of spread it out that way we've we've come at it a different angle and gone this is what, what data do you need can we can we work together to get it and then you have it and then you and as far as the anglers they collected that data they it's not made up we've not we've not fabricated these data that shows angling's bad they've been there to collect the data they they have extra trust in it like they know they they helped collect the data so there's that buy-in as well. So any mm. new regulation change, like the anglers will be like, yeah, actually we did see that if you did A, then B would happen. But if you did C, then D would happen. So we can see why they've made those rules. 
So you get a bit more like on board kind of support for new regulations, mm. things like that. So long story short, there's the understanding the humans, but also like working with the humans as well to, to kind of solve the problem is, has been key for us. Yeah, yeah. One last thing too is that yes, independent nonprofits can produce yes. very valuable research. <laughs> Wait, that's yeah. something that like I again we've not to leave that aspect out, and I don't know if it's super <laughs> appropriate on this platform, but I just think that a lot of people, you know, everyone was like, well, what university? Oh, are you with NOAA? Are you with this agency? No, no, no. And we, I think that's a mm. big takeaway too, is that very valuable data mm-hmm. um, can come from independent nonprofits, um, you know, research groups, whatever that can really yeah. support, you know, FWC is like, we don't, we don't have the bandwidth to do this. Um, you know, NOAA is a, is a federal, our federal agency. So that's, they just move, you know, things move a little slower and, and funds are a little bit less available. And, you know, so yeah, it was, I, I do want to make that little plug too, is that, you know, we wait for these studies to come out. And I think we, you can actually rely on, on mm-hmm. groups like ours to, to help move that along. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's that, there's that famous saying, you know, it takes a village. Mm. And I think when we're talking about things like sustainability, you know, there's there's all these different levels and all these different dimensions to it. So, you know, we've talked a lot about, you know, the social science side today and the, the sort of human dimensions aspect. But we've also talked about, you know, the kind of getting the scientific data and getting the or not, you know, social science is also science. But you, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So like the biological data and the, the geographical data as well. And then kind of combining that all together and informing policy in that way is kind of like a, a view of the bigger picture. So I guess when we're talking about, you know, making shark fisheries more sustainable, we need to look at all of these different dimensions. Absolutely. Uh, and understand them and, you know, use all the expertise available to, to do that. It's a big question <laughs> and a very, very big undertaking. But I think we've done... We've done a pretty good job of, you know, going through all of those different areas, you know, in the space of the podcast. And I could honestly talk to you two all day, <laughs> but I am fully aware that you guys have 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 things to do. But um, I've just got a couple I've just got a couple more quick questions just to finish us off. So my first one would be, you know, what is next for you guys? Uh, well, we've got a few grant or the proposals in. <laughs> <laughs> Fingers and toes are crossed for sure. Cause we'd really like to expand, um, you know, there's there obviously as you get into these questions, like you just realize there are more questions, yeah. <laughs> so expanding, you know, to boat based things, to, um, different species and even just boosting our sample size for the hammerheads would be amazing. And we just, we have so much support from other big organizations from NOAA, from FW, you know, from the agencies that, you know, need mm-hmm. it. So we're, we're full steam ahead on that as well. Um, and we've just, I mean, I, uh, growing ASC I, is American Shark Conservancy is a major mission um, and it's, uh, it's, it's happening every day. So it keeps me super busy, but yeah, I'm just super proud of, of our interns, our research assistants, mm-hmm. our collaborators. Um, Jill has been amazing um so yeah that's just keep us keep us going keep us contributing um where it's needed is is the main main goal for the next foreseeable future yeah exactly yeah, and, and jill how about how about you uh well just adding on to hannah's like expanding our sample size um the great hammerhead well the hammerhead complex in the fisheries in commercial fisheries in the u.s they they haven't got a, a good idea of the stock size so that original population that you can take from and, and understand all the kind of the math between what's sustainable or not they they haven't assessed that yet and that's this year and next year's job for NOAA they're like okay we're going to look at hammerheads and try and figure out how many there are how many are dying and all of these things so they've reached out to us and like okay now we need your data because now is the time we're discussing this so um, we're really hoping to expand on the sample because it is hard to catch a critically endangered species from a beach at night with anglers we we've put a lot of nights on that beach um 
So that's kind of, yeah, the next step is just to get more funding, to get more tags, to, to get a better idea of what's going on. And hopefully uh, I'll be allowed to travel soon and I can go and help Hannah in the field in Florida. <laughs> Yeah, we'll have a we'll finally have a doctor amongst us. So when Jill successfully yeah. defends, and we'll finally have Doctor Brooks that uh, that'll quiet all the people who are like, "But you don't have a PhD. How is this possible?" <laughs> so I can just be like, "I know it's Doctor Brooks. It's fine." That's so exciting. I mean, I must I must say when when I got mine, I every time someone said Doctor Hodgson, I was like, "Ooh!" Ooh. Like you never you never quite get used no. to it. So yeah, you've got that to look forward to. <laughs> <laughs> but um but but no definitely i mean hopefully you can go and eat your spaghetti bolognese again uh, <laughs> oh. at 3 a.m <laughs> <The word. But, laughs> such a such a random choice i know uh, but but fair enough fair dues um but yes fingers crossed for those proposals because the work that you're doing is just so incredibly valuable and yeah there's definitely so much further that it can go so mm. yeah fingers crossed for for all of that and if people are you know if, if people are interested in finding out you know more about your work uh where can they go to find out about it um uh, well we have a, a website which is just american shark conservancy.org um so we're pretty active um on social media as well so instagram is asc underscore shark studies um and then facebook american shark conservancy honestly if you just google it you can find <laughs> you can find all of our um all of our social media and digital um presence uh just by american shark conservancy so that's probably the easiest awesome yeah and there'll be links to everything in the show notes right. as well so links to how you can find find out about their work as well and my final question is one of my favorites which is if you could be any species of shark, what would you be and why? <laughs> I mean, I'm going to be super cheesy. Um, just the thought of not having to worry about anything but orcas. Um, I'm going to go white shark. I know I hate saying that, but it sounds too easy. Um, but just to cruise around and like, they just don't have anything to worry about. And that's, that's a life goal. So I'm going to say white shark. <laughs> I mean, they're pretty badass. I'm not gonna <laughs> lie. I, I I don't think that's a that's a bad answer at all. Um, <laughs> I mean, apart from the obvious orca uh, orca issue, we'll so... ignore that part. But... <laughs> Just stay stay away from false bay. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Jill, how about you? Uh, and I think I would also have to be cheesy and go lemon shark. Just one because of the snowbird angle i i like those warm temperatures in the winter and they do that too they like to migrate south um but also on a super cheesy angle of i know they they return to bimini every one to two years to to hang out so uh that would be pretty cool a pretty cool routine cycle to do every two years pop in and say hi to everyone so i would yeah lemon sharks and they're my favorites yeah yeah oh both both super good answers i my whatever species i would be changes every week so yeah it would just just be just be cool to be a shark in general i think but yes but thank you guys so so much for coming on the podcast it's been absolutely fantastic to talk to you and like i said i could talk to you literally all day same (laughs) same thank you for making it very uh (laughs) easy and chatty i I appreciate that a lot sometimes it can be a little stressful but no this was this was my pleasure thank you so much yes same thank you no i'm glad to hear that it that it wasn't stressful and you know i didn't uh, induce a stress response (laughs) (laughs) and i hate to admit it but i think i'm actually like a great hammerhead that's why they do stress pretty easily so um, I'm pretty sure I, this was a very successful catch yeah. yeah I must say I can I think we can all see a bit of ourselves in in the great comments <laughs> all right thank you guys thank you so that brings us to the end of our conversation with the amazing Hannah and Jill from the American Shark Conservancy I honestly could have talked to these ladies all day. I think their project is super interesting and important. And, you know, the topic of sustainability and fisheries is one that is so multifaceted and has so many different avenues that we could go down. You know, we'll definitely be touching on it 
in future episodes but for now I just want to say a massive thank you to Hannah and Jill for coming on the podcast and chatting to me about their awesome work um, and also you know giving us a an insight, a deep dive into the world of um, sustainability and shark angling. So thank you guys so, so much for that. Um, as always, like I said, I will put links to everything in the show notes so you'll be able to find Hannah and Jill and find links to their work. Um, so please go and check that out. If you like this episode, I hope you did, uh, please be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss the next one and leave us a nice little review on iTunes. This just helps more people to find the podcast. And if you'd like a question answered on the podcast or just want to say hi, please feel free to get in touch by emailing isla at saverseas.com. You can also find out more about Save Our Seas by going to saverseas.com. And a big thank you to David Knight, who provided our wonderful jingle. All right, that's it for now. Thank you for listening, and I will see you next time.